Good morning. I'm glad you took time today to spend time in God's house, away from your normal routines, spending time here with God's people. This is a special day, and I want to thank AV team for getting things all set. Thank you for our worship team. Thank you for our ushers. Every part of this body is important, and I'm thankful that you consider it important to be in God's presence today. We talked a little bit about ACF. ACF had their first uh, summer uh, ACF, and I'm very thankful for the uh, teaching and the fellowship that went on on Friday. Thank you that you guys met. You guys didn't tell us your meeting about vision. We want to be in the next meeting where you guys meet about vision and purpose. That's an important thing you guys continue to uh, work on this summer. I'm very thankful. Um, We got a chance. Let's see here. What do I need to do here, Michael? What do you got here? Anything? Yes, there it is. Good. This is a picture of graduation party. You guys all had graduation parties. You saw these 10 seniors stand up. Uh, it's very important to celebrate you know, the, the time of graduation. But more importantly, if you look closely at some of these pictures, you see some of the ACFers interacting with the YFers as college kids interact with the high schoolers. Uh, that's a good thing. And we hope um, there's another picture. This is another important one. Not only did the Pirates win this game, but I got a chance to introduce Matt to a key family in our church, Kevin and Peggy. We went to the Pirate game on um, Wednesday. And what I'm looking for in this church is for us to be that transgenerational church where the older, more uh, mature invest in the younger generation. The younger generation continues to grow, and our church continues to grow as we have that generation investing in the next generation. So look for this, come especially this fall. We're looking about ways to change our white harvest a little bit, our discipleship groups, ways that this church becomes more integrated uh, with each other. Well, if you've been with us, you know that we've been covering um, Joshua for over a year now, since last April. Calvin reminded me we need to review every week, so let's review a little bit of where we've come from. Uh, in 21, we saw God divide up the land to the 12 tribes, and the one tribe that didn't get any land was the Levites, right? The Levites get 48 cities instead. 48 cities are salt and light to be God's leaders uh, throughout all of Israel. And then we talked in 23 about being very firm. That means very strong in God's word. We also talked about the concept of clinging, about being attached and being affixed to uh, the Lord your God. And we found it so easy. We talked about that week, what we can be attached to, what we can be fixed to are many idols. Talked about the good thing about being productive and getting a lot of work done. That could be an idol in our life if we make work our idol. could be our body image. Think about the way we look, the way we dress. could be our idol. could be finances. We think about our money and how big our retirement accounts are. That could be our idol. We talk very carefully about not making those things idols in our life. And we talked about this concept about God fighting for you. That God fights for us. Now, if God fights for us, One thing we talked about is that we don't have to fight our own battles. We don't have to take revenge. We don't have to get even with people. We don't have to make it right in our eyes. God's going to take care of that. That's not our job. And we talked also, if God is fighting for us, they provided Christ, the Passover, the perfect lamb, that even our sins are canceled out in Christ. If God is fighting for us, even our sins, we don't have to worry about because they're canceled out in Christ. And then just last week, We talked about the sins 
that can ensnare us, that can trap us, that are like thorns in our sides or this, um, a whip in our eyes or thorns in our eyes. And the idea instead is to love our God. And I introduced that Puritan, that Thomas Watson, till sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. And to really, really understand that sin is something we want nothing to do with. That sin is something that's going to entangle us. It's going to trap us. We won't really understand how great and how wonderful and how sweet Christ is. Okay, so that got us all the way through 23. Believe it or not, we're in the last chapter now. This is 24. We're at 24. Can, Vivian, can I turn down just a little bit? Okay, a little echo here. Um, in 24, we're in our last chapter. And within the last, if you guys stick with us, in the last couple of weeks in June, we will finish Joshua. And we'll be on to our next book. And I'll tell you about that as time comes. But when we stand together as we read Joshua 24. Let's read together. Then Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and called for the elders of Israel and for their heads and their judges and their officers. And they presented themselves before God. Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, From ancient times your fathers lived beyond the river, namely Terah, the father of Abraham and the father of Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I sent Moses and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt, and afterward I brought you out. I brought your fathers out of Egypt, and they pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. Then I brought you into the land of the Amorites, and they fought with you, and I gave them into your hand, and they took possession of their land, and I destroyed them before you. I gave you a land on which you had not labored, and cities which you had not built, and you have lived in them. You are eating of vineyards and olive groves which you did not plant. Okay, here's the interesting passage. This is probably the most famous part of Joshua. Let's read these last few verses. If it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served which were beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. <coughs> Father, I do pray that you find our hearts thankful this morning to a God that's fighting for us, a God that promises to bring us to places we cannot go ourselves, to free us from sins that we can't free ourselves from, to know that you're a God that we can serve, a good God. And as we serve you and put you first, we be certain, Lord, that you'll take care of the things that concern us. Pray these things in your name. Amen. Sometimes I get these uh, interesting emails from some of my colleagues. One of my medical colleagues sent me an interesting article this week. Uh, the article is termed Association Between Life Purpose and Mortality Among U.S. Adults. So if you're older than 50-year-olds, year uh, 50, excuse me, how important is it to have a life purpose? Does life purpose have any bearing on how long you'll live? And he sent out life purpose being this. Purpose in life can be defined as self-organizing life aim that stimulates goals, promotes healthy behaviors, and gives meaning to life. You may not really get a full idea of this chart here, but the people that have very little life purpose, who are depressed, 
who feel that it's hopeless, feel that there's no goals in their life are the number ones. The ones are the blue line at the bottom. And uh, they have a much higher mortality than people who have a higher life purpose. Six, I didn't understand this questionnaire completely, but people who have really strong life purpose, who really understand something to live for, uh, and they didn't say what those goals were. I, I read through the whole paper. I couldn't find out what those life goals were. But they have a much higher chance to live. And they showed a lot of areas in your life where you become much healthier. They have all these metrics about having life purpose and your health of life. And for Christians, I think we understand that. That's very true, that all of us that have life purpose, have a goal in our life, have meaning to live, I think we're much healthier. We understand life much deeper. We'll understand a little bit later how that correlates to us having life purpose. But think about that in general, that the way that God designed our bodies, the way they designed us for life, is actually to have a purpose in our life. Let's think about Joshua for a little bit. We've done a lot of study through Joshua, a year's worth of study in Joshua. Joshua actually served under Moses for 40 years in the desert. He was kind of his captain, kind of led him against a few battles when they're in um, the wandering for those 40 years. And very similar to Moses. Moses was how old when he took over? Or he went to Egypt to free the um, people from Pharaoh? 80, 80, remember? 40 years in Egypt, 40 years in the uh, wilderness, and then the last 40 years he serves um, to get the people out. So at 80, he takes over. How old do you think Joshua was when he took over this call to lead the Israelites? He's actually a little bit older. He's actually 85. At 85, Joshua, Moses passes away. Joshua, Yeshua, now takes us into the promised land. And so he leads Israel um, for seven years. And, and for seven years, he takes over this campaign, which we've been studying for the last year. So from 85 to 92, he actually fights all the battles. He leads on campaigns. Remember who he's working with. He's working with farmers. He's working with shepherds. He's working with bricklayers. And he takes them and molds them and shapes them into someone that takes over the seven nations, the seven nations that were greater than Israel. Joshua, in 92, is doing these incredible things. And so his time here through Joshua is mostly those seven years. And in 23, 18 years further pass, and then it's another um, 25 years total. He's now 110. He's now 110. And what I suspect he's been doing these years, it's not really clear in Joshua, but he's probably teaching them to rebuild the cities, teaching them how to uh, cultivate the land, teaching them how to rebuild this land called Israel. And now Joshua has taken over a new role, not only as commander-in-chief, but leading Israel to uh, retake over the promised land. And so in 110, he now gives his valedictory speech or sermon. This is it. This is the last time we're going to hear from Joshua. He's going to lay it all out for them. He's said things before, but basically he's a military commander. Basically he is the guy to conquer the land. So you don't hear him preach a lot. You don't hear him give a lot of sermons. But this is his final one. And he said, this is it. This is why I'm going to give my final speech. Uh, valedictorians, anyone? You guys in the general victorians? There's probably some of you guys who are probably too embarrassed to say it. But valedictory basically means farewell. It's his last speech. The valedictorian, he's going to give you your farewell speech. 
This is Joshua's valedictorious speech to Israel. So, as I told you, probably the most famous part of Joshua is we go to Joshua 24. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Okay, I've never asked you to memorize scripture. For all this last year, I've never asked you to memorize one scripture. I'm going to ask you to memorize this one as we close Joshua. Let's try together. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Okay. Um, you should have memorized it. It's so simple. You guys probably heard it time and time again. But throughout this week, try to remember that. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. My kids know that my passwords are usually scripture verses. So you don't use John 3.16, but you take WWST, capital L, and then Joshua 24. You can make that your password. You could do these things. Your, whatever verse you have, if you memorize it, you think every time you type into this password, you can remember God's word by making these your passwords. I won't ask your favorite verse, but that could be something to help you memorize God's word. So this is it. What is Joshua going to do? How does Joshua do Bible exposition? Now, at this time, only the Pentateuch is written, right? Really, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Joshua has not been written yet. So what he's going to do, and what I took you through just a little bit of verses 3 through 13. If you have your Bibles, you can look at the whole <clears throat> part here from 3 through 13. Joshua does Bible exposition. He goes through communicating the meaning of the text of Scripture into contemporary culture. So things that happened a long time ago, Joshua is going to bring it up to them to understand the Word of God. That's what Bible exposition is done hopefully every week here. Hopefully you're doing that in your own devotions. Communicating the meaning of the text of Scripture into a contemporary context. How does the Bible apply to us today? So what he starts with is, I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and multiplied his descendants and gave him Isaac. And if you remember what we just read earlier, Abraham was worshiping idols at that time. His father Terah was worshiping idols at that time. God brought them out of idol worship and said, hey, follow me. And around age 72, Abraham leaves his land and starts following God. To Isaac, I gave Jacob and Esau. Remember, Jacob had a very difficult time getting back to his family, but God protects Jacob, brings him to reconciliation with Esau again. Only God could do that. Then I sent Moses and Aaron. Why did he have to send Moses and Aaron? Let's see. I got hung up here again. What happened, Michael? Is it, is it me? Maybe anything? All right, can I forward it? Can you forward it for me? What do you think? Oh, okay, that's okay. Okay, so after that, he sent Moses and Aaron to the Israelites. He sent them because they were enslaved in Egypt at that time. So there they are enslaved again. First, we have Abraham enslaved to the idols, and then we have the Israelites enslaved to, sorry, let me get my slides back. What can I do? Anything? Something's funny here. Can't fix it. Okay. All right. So if you look, maybe you have to turn to your Bibles now. It, we're in Joshua 24, 3 to 13. He plagues Egypt. And he plagues Egypt in a way that he plays Egypt. He has to send Moses and Aaron to them. And then when he says, I brought 
your fathers out of Egypt. He actually brings them out of Egypt next. And then he says, I brought you into the land of Amorites. And if you're following here, the thing that I think Joshua is trying to push home here is that I took your father Abraham. I sent Moses and Aaron. I plagued Egypt. I brought your fathers out of Egypt. I brought you into the land of the Amorites. And time and time again, if we look at it very clearly, it's what God has done. It's always about God. It's always about God's power and about God's ability to do things that we couldn't do. We're talking about being enslaved to sin, just like the Israelites are enslaved to Egypt. God has to save us from those things. We can't save ourselves. God has to do this for us. And then he goes on. This is the conclusion of his speech here. I gave them into your hand. He's talking about the Amorites. You took possession of their land. What happened? I destroyed them before you. And then he goes through who he destroyed. I gave them into your hand, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Girgashite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite, the seven nations that were stronger than Israel. God said, I did it. I gave you those nations in your hand. It was always God, always about God. Things that the Israelites cannot do for themselves. And then even the land that they're living on. I gave you the land on which you have not labored, cities which you have not built, and you have lived in them. You're eating vineyards and olive groves which you did not plant. These are things that God blesses us with, that God gives to us. God frees us from that we cannot do ourselves. So think about every time what Joshua's trying to do. You couldn't do it yourself. God did it for you. You're enslaved. God freed you. You're unable to conquer this land, have these vineyards, these farmlands. I gave them to you. It's always about God. Now I want you to think about a New Testament context. Does this carry over to our present-day New Testament context? Think about what Ephesians 2 teaches us. This is the concept in Ephesians 2. And you were dead in your trespasses and sin, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world. Our lives are entrapped in sin. I don't know what sin you guys are wrestling with today. I don't know what sin has ensnared you today. Every one of us has something in our heart where we're ensnared in sin. What Ephesians is telling us, you are dead in that sin. You are walking to the course of this world. And it goes on. Among them too, we all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of our flesh of our mind, and we are by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Ensnared, entrapped, idols. These are here. This is in every one of us. Our sinful nature, we're entrapped by. This is just like Egypt. This is just like Abraham. This is just like the Amorites, you know, in that land who are worshiping foreign gods. All of us are symbolized by what Joshua is talking about in the Old Testament. But God never leaves us in this state. If you know Ephesians well, but here's the but coming. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we are dead in our transgressions. We don't deserve it. There's nothing we could do to earn it. Only God could do this. What did God do? He made us alive with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him. This is what we were singing about this morning. Almost every one of the songs that Calvin chose for us going from a state of death to a state of life. 
rejoicing for God's work. How great thou art. Only God could do this for us. It's a very famous verse from Ephesians 2. For by grace you've been saved through faith and not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one may boast. I want you to think about this very clearly. Just as Abraham was rescued, just as Israel was rescued from a redeemed out of Egypt, just as the Israelites were delivered from the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, we too are rescued, we're delivered, redeemed by the person of Christ. And here you have the gospel very clearly that none of us could have gotten out of it. We're ensnared, we're entrapped, we're dead in our sins. And God, by his grace, God, by the precious blood of Christ, makes us alive in him. The message that Joshua is giving back in Joshua 24 is as live, as relevant as what Paul is giving to us in Ephesians 2. It's the same analogy over and over again of a great God who loves and redeems his people. A great God that saves his people that can't be saved any other way. He does it. And it's all about God. That's why we sing. What an awesome God we have. What a worthy God. What the precious blood of Christ is. It's all about God and what he's done for us. So if we see that very clearly, if you understand the gospel very clearly, Joshua brings you to a point now. If you understand the gospel, here it is. If it's disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves today whom you're going to serve. Here's the choice now. So you know what God has done. You know what God has rescued us from. You know the sin and the slavery. You're going to now have to make a choice. Choose this day for yourselves whom you will serve, whether the gods of which your fathers served, which were beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites who are land you are living. That's one choice. You guys can choose that. You can stay in sin. You can stay ensnared. You can stay trapped to the lifestyle that you had, the lusts that you had. Or he gives you a very simple choice. But as for me and my house, what? What's the rest of the verse? We will serve the Lord. You guys have it memorized. Joshua 24, 14, uh, 15, excuse me, 24, 15. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Make the choice. Today's the day. Just like Joshua said then, same thing today. Today's the same choice. All of us know what it's like to be ensnared, to be trapped, to have that sin in our life. Joshua's saying, choose that or make your choice today. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That's, that's the option. Okay, so we had all of our seniors stand up earlier. Um, let's say there's 10 or 11 of you. According to statistics, how many of you will keep your faith after freshman year of college? Anybody know? General statistics for Christians across America who go to college, spend their first year of freshman year, what percentage will keep their faith? How many? 12 to 25. 12 to 25. Okay. 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 Oh, you guys read, your, you guys read the... Uh, Insert. Okay, good. That's good. Okay, you guys read the insert. Okay. You'll discuss that later in your white harvest groups. So basically, 25, 12 to 25% 
will remain Christian, 75 to 88% of college freshmen will leave the faith. This is according to the Southern Baptist Convention. They took a poll of their freshmen. So let's take a lower number. Let's say 75% leave, the lower number. Think about that. 75% of these freshmen, we're praying for you guys, and we pray it's not you guys, but there's 75% of you freshmen that will no longer be interested in Christianity and God's word and coming to church and having fellowship. I want you to think, think about that. 75%. 75% of our students leaving the faith after one year of being away from your home church. This is interesting. This is from Vadi Bachman. This is very interesting. He had some statistics in the Southern Baptist. He said right now there's 16 million members in the Southern Baptist church. It's one of our larger denominations across America. Uh, I was looking at Presbyterians, Baptists, so forth, but the Southern Baptist is one of our largest uh, once. So there's 16 million. In one generation, how many would be left? If 25% remain? Four million. Four million. One more generation? Right? Of the one million, one more generation? 250,000. So you look at those numbers, you think by the time these great grandchildren come to church, of a population of 300, 400 million in America, 250,000. Out of 16 million to start with in just four generations, 250,000. It should shock you. It should be amazingly shocking that we're just saying, oh, 75% of kids leave. Oh, that's too bad. But really think about what is happening here across America. It's an incredible shift of people leaving the faith. And Vadi has an interesting answer to this. He goes, oh, that's okay. We're going to replace them with evangelism. So if we evangelize, what we'll do is we'll replace all these students leaving the faith. And because all of our families are having less children, it's not a one-for-one replacement. Because all of us are having 1.9, 1.7 children in your families, it's going less and less. We're having less and less children. What happens now, if we start evangelizing, one Christian has to evangelize three Christians to just maintain, just maintain, just because we're dying off faster than we're repopulating. So one Christian has to be replaced with three, if you understand what we're talking about in our population. So this is an interesting statistic that shocked me, actually. How many Christians does it take to evangelize to bring one person to Christ? How many people would have to plant the seed water the seed, harvest the seed. How many Christians does it take to bring one Christian, a new Christian, to the Lord? I'm not sure where he got this statistic, but Reverend Bachman says it takes 43 Christians to bring one Christian. So 43. If we have 80 people here, uh, it's going to take half the congregation to bring one, one person to Christ. This half the congregation to bring one person to Christ. Our evangelism is not what we think it is. We're falling far short of being able to evangelize well, planting the seeds, watering the seeds, harvesting seeds. We're not doing a good job on it. We're actually decreasing at a great rate. And so we take a little stronger look at the teenagers, going back to the teens again. This is interesting because 90% of Christian teenagers do not have a biblical worldview. They don't believe God is sovereign. They don't believe the Bible is true authority. They don't believe the value of life and the sanctity of marriage. These Teenagers, 90%, don't believe the biblical values of those things. You just don't, I don't know if it's our fault we haven't taught you that, or you just don't believe it. And the world has encapsulated your heart and your mind and ensnared you in a way away from God's word. 
And shockingly, only 5% of Christians understand the deity of Christ, how Christ is our Lord God, the Trinity, and the substitutionary atonement of what Christ has done. So again, we're doing a very poor job of educating our young people of the biblical truths. I hope that's not true in our church. I hope we're investing. That's why we're talking about this transgeneration, that each generation is investing these truths in another. It has to be taught. And I think the best place to teach that, again, this is Vadi, is the home. The home is the best place to teach us. It's up to Pastor Adam, and it's important, but we shouldn't put the burden on him. It really should be taught in our homes. Our mothers and our fathers should be teaching this to the next generation. Our homes are the nucleus. Our families are the nucleus that God works with. He works with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. It continues on and on because God works in families, in these units. Our family units, when they break down, I think the whole system breaks down. And the numbers we're seeing now, I think it's because the family has broken down. Some of our church, absolutely. But I think it's our families that are breaking down. When we break down the family, then all these statistics come up. So I hope most of you, or many of you, had parents that loved you and taught you God's word. Uh, these are, again, interesting statistics about what's happening in our own families. Which parent offers more spiritual guidance, your mom or your dad? Any thoughts about this? Mom, dad? Mom, dad? Okay. Mom, mom, mom. Unfortunately, so, uh, it's, it should be even, uh, but it, it's not. It's not. I don't know if you can read these together. So praying together, 63% felt mom did more than the dad at 53%. Um, Let's see here. Talking about the Bible, 66% mom, 50% on dad. Um, talk, talking and teaching about forgiveness, 66 mom, 47 uh, dad. And discussing about God, 70% mom, 56% dad. It goes on here. Oh, my, my sheet's too small. Can you guys read these? Let me see. Okay, discussing about the Bible, 70% mom, 50% dad. Teaching about religious tradition, 72% mom, 49% dad. Responding to faith questions. This is where moms do a much better job. Uh, 72%, 56 dad. Teaching faith and setting an example. 73% mom, 70% dad. Now that's pretty close. Dads are coming up in that. Encouraging church attendance, 79% mom, 64% dad. Uh, Again, I wish it was equal. It is a job between mom and dad to do this together. Moms are carrying the load, and I appreciate that. I think that's wonderful. Dads need to step up. Dads need to teach these things. Dad needs to model these things. Dad needs to spend time encouraging this, mentoring our children. And again, what I'm getting at, when Joshua tells us, for me and my house, I think Joshua said this very clearly. It's not, I'm going to serve God. He says, me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And I want you to start thinking, whether you're married or not, that my house needs to serve the Lord. Mother, father, children. This is the way God designed it for us to work. You heard that pride thing come up a couple times today. I'm not against people loving each other. We just do it in a way that God teaches us with a mother and a father, with our children. This is the way God designed the family to work. And when we obey that, this is the way God blesses us. When we don't do that, when fathers neglect their duties, mothers neglect their duties, we have a great falling off. We have those numbers that I showed you before, and we get in trouble. Now, the next couple of slides, I, I hope you take this in context. My family is broken. My family is dysfunctional. My family has a lot of faults. Many sermons you hear me talk about 
my faults and things that are wrong with me and things I've done. So the next couple of slides, take that in context. I'm going to say something to my family, not because we're perfect, not because we're better than anyone else, just because when I was thinking about all the stories I could tell you and how to bring this home, God put it most on my heart to talk about my family. It's not, I hope you don't hear, I'm not trying to elevate my family by any stretch. When we talk about this though, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. As I mentioned to you, I think it starts with our men, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in a discipline and instruction of the Lord. That it's men who need to discipline and instruct our children. It's men who need to be preaching and teaching these things to our children. We talk about our life purpose earlier before. This is a man's life purpose, to bring our children up in the Lord. Earlier in Ephesians 5, to love our wives as Christ has loved the church. Right? It's men's job to do that. That's our job. If we're not doing that, we're going to have a breakdown in our family. In 1982, we had a preacher come to our PCC retreat. We used to have retreats with the Chinese. We used to have these family retreats every summer. And it was very routine. We'd have this every summer. We'd have these speakers come. And then one year, a speaker came named Greg Ao Young. Greg Ao Young preached on this passage in Ephesians 2, when I talked about being saved by grace. And my father heard the sermon in a way he never heard before. And he went up to the bonfire and he says, I rededicate my life to the Lord. I'm going to do whatever the Lord tells me, 1982. Next summer, 1983, for the next 20 years to 2002, every summer, we never had a family vacation after that. My father always went on a short-term missions trip. And he would go to places around the world and he would do his dentistry. And with his dentistry, he would also preach the gospel. And every summer... I knew I'd be left alone, unfortunately. Uh, I did very, I had very poor use of my time and my resources. They left me alone. But what mom and dad would do was go and minister year after year after year. That other statistic I show you about modeling and being an example, uh, men um, are a little better at that. Dad wouldn't always talk to me and share with me verbally about the gospel, but he would model it for me. And he'd say, you know, Gordon... I'm sorry we're not going on family vacation this year, but I'm going to China. I'm going to Africa. I'm going to Costa Rica. I'm going to the Philippines. I'm going wherever God would take him, he would go. And I said, okay. I, I, I'd miss our family vacation. I'd miss time with mom and dad. I'd be home. But I understood what dad was trying to do. And he instilled that in me all the way through high school and college. If we go on about, as for me and my house, the second part of the house I believe, is wives. Wives be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. Whereas the husband is head of the Christ, uh, wife, Christ is also head of the church, he himself being savior of the body. Wives have a purpose as well. Women have a purpose as well. Women have gifting as well. Women are incredibly important to the body of Christ. This is incredibly important that wives understand their role. Women, um, I'm going to just put a picture here. Like my mom Supported dad wherever dad went. Wherever he went. Going to Africa, going to the Philippines. Mom would just pack up the stuff, pack up all those things, sterilize it for him. Wherever he would go, mom would follow. Mom would, you know, dad would be doing dentistry. Mom would be back there in the back room sterilizing and cleaning up the instruments. Mom always followed dad 
wherever dad went. And it reminded me too, again, about this thing about a home, that moms are modeling it. They're teaching it. Mom is much more verbal. She would make me memorize scripture. She'd make me notes with verses on it, pack it in my lunch. But those are things that mom did to put our family together. As for me and my house, my house, we're going to say to the Lord, to get an idea what the house would look like. Children, not left out of this. Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise. Remember the first four commands, all vertical, right? Love the Lord your, I mean, thou shalt have no graven images in front of me. Um, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. All four of those. This is the first horizontal command. It's the first one with a promise. So that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. Children as well. We need to honor our parents. We need to understand obeying our parents for this is right. And this is what Ephesians teaches us. This is a life principle. Mom and dad are protectors. They're put there for a reason, Christian or non-Christian. Uh, a lot of ACFers ask these questions. Well, oh, Gordon, if my mom and dad are not Christian, do I need to obey? Absolutely, you still need to obey them. Until it comes in conflict with what God says, you need to honor your mom and dad. You need to submit to them. God put them over pur- uh, with a purpose over you. It was not a mistake. You love and cherish them, Christian or non-Christian. You honor them just as right. So as you heard, Julie on a bus trip to um, New York to get our visas. So this next generation, we're learning. So 17 of us are going to go back to China this summer, and we too are going to try to do that same thing. Use our skills, use our gifting, share God's word as best as possible. You know, China's closing down. We used to be able to do dental work, do medical work. Now they say we can't do any medical or dental work anymore. We can only give lectures. But as we give our lectures, I hope that we're giving honor to the Lord as we enter act with the hospital staff there, our relatives there, I hope we're learning the same thing. So our life purpose, our life goals, it's got to be centered around this house that God builds. Now, I want you to think of this time together as a house too. This is a family of families. We're not all from the same genetic family, but we're on the same family of Christ. So this is a house that we're building here. Yes, we're building our individual homes with our mother and our father, our children. But this is a family too. And we think of this family, but as for me and my house, what? No, it's not very good. As for, but as for me and my house? Okay, thank you. So this is an idea that even as a family of families, as a church body, we need to serve the Lord and give our life purpose. So our life purpose before it gives us longer life. Joshua's giving me a little different point of it. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Okay, I'm just going to close with some words that are not mine. Uh, one is from Dr. Bob Moorhead. And this is, might be a little geared toward men, but it's kind of interesting. It says, the paradox of our age. We've learned to rush but not wait. We have higher incomes, but lower morals. More food, but less appeasement. More acquaintances, but less friends. More effort, but less success. These are the times of fast foods and slow digestion. Tall men, 
and short character, steep profits and shallow relationships. It's a time when there's much in the show window, but nothing in the stockroom. Today, many want to gain the world at the mere expense of their souls. Now, in contrast, this is written by a woman named Irma Bombeck. Uh, and I feel a little more relationships with this one. This is um, entitled, If I Had My Life to Live Over Again. If I had my life to live over again, I would have talked less and listened more. I would have invited friends over to dinner, even if the carpet was stained and the sofa faded. I would have eaten popcorn in the good living room and worried much less about the dirt when someone wanted to light a fire in a fireplace. I've taken time to listen to my grandfather ramble about his youth. I would have sat in the lawn with my children and not worried about grass stains. I would have shared the responsibility, share more of the responsibility carried by my husband. Instead of wishing away nine months of pregnancy, I'd have cherished every moment and realized the wonderment growing inside me it was the only chance to assist God in a miracle. There have been more I love you's, more I'm sorry's. All right, why don't we just um, close here. Father, it's